Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club, the podcast dedicated to the chiropractic work of Dr. Clarence Gonstead. I'm Dr. David Fowler, Vice President of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society and a Gonstead Diplomate. Today, my guest is Dr. Jesse Davis. Dr. Davis is the 2010 GMI Doctor of the Year and a past board member for GMI. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book, Screw Normal. We live in interesting times, and people are often wanting to get back to normal. But is that really the best course of action? Join us today as we discuss what it means to be normal. So without any further ado, Dr. Jesse Davis. Hello, Dr. Davis. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, David. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into Gonstead and how you um, how you got into chiropractic? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, had a fairly short initial career in genetics research, um, and I had an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. My last semester in school, I had developed this um, basically in one side of my head, this sinus infection in my ear and my sinuses that would not go away. Um, my mother ultimately referred me to her chiropractor that she had seen. And so there I was, I was, you know, just graduating, had my brand new biochemistry degree on the wall and was sitting, I remember it clear as day. I was sitting in this daytime workshop as a lunch chiropractic health talk. There's me, I was, you know, 22 and there's this guy who was a firefighter and she gave this talk. The two of us, we sat on the floor, um, and I just remember thinking, you know, I don't remember hearing any of this, but the power inside the body that heals the body. And I was like, that makes sense. And we learned a lot of details, but I did not learn any of this. So uh, that really planted the seed um, for me. And someone else I had seen at one point, um, I grew up in New Hampshire and then another chiropractor that I'd seen, he'd studied uh, a decent amount of uh, Gonset work at um, Palmer and he, uh, you know, as some people t- do, you know, who actually transitioned out of doing Gonstead work, but he said, here, you know, look this up when you get there. And I saw the value in it very quickly. I was someone, I think because I had enough background, you know, I wasn't just absolutely swamped by um, biochemistry and some of those other classes. When I first got to chiropractic school, I was able to, it was a real gift, actually, I was able to spend that first year just absolutely nose deep in all the different techniques and just saying, okay, what is this? How does this work? And how do I make this uh, most effective? And uh, it just became the clear winner. Yeah, that's great. So you recently wrote a book called Screw Normal. And so my first question is, what made you decide to write a book? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, Some of it- You may not have decided yet. (laughs) You may still be wondering. (laughs) Yeah, I so I started writing um, pretty seriously. I, I have, I guess, I've done it over ten years in different capacities, um, but I really started producing a lot of work maybe in, t- in twenty eighteen. I had um, a couple of really young kids, um, and I really was having a hard time managing some of the promotion from the practice and the responsibilities at home and various things. And I was like, okay, what can I do to promote the practice at four a.m. And, um, I emailed my patient list, my email list, um, almost every single day for about a year and a half. 
Um, and finally, I realized that I had written basically the equivalent of two or three books and emailed it to about 400 people. Mm. And at first I was like, wow, this is cool. I got a good response. People seem to really enjoy it. It was, you know, it, it uh, wasn't ultimately like a lot of promotions. It wasn't a huge practice builder, but it seemed to be really good for education and retention. Um, and so as a part of that, I ended up doing quite a bit of work for um, Inception Online Marketing, Mike and Amy Hamilton, um, their online marketing system, which is great. I, I wrote uh, somewhere 50, 75 newsletters for them for some of their products. And um, so I was, when at the beginning of this year, I was essentially writing a book. I thought, okay, well, I've got a lot of extra time on my hands. I can't leave the house. Um, I'm right outside of Boston, which we had really one of the worst outbreaks in the country outside of kind of New York City, New Jersey. And so here I am writing this book while the whole world was focused on this crazy coronavirus pandemic that was happening. And I thought, what, you know, what am I really doing right now? Like, can I launch this thing in the middle of this? Um, and just ended up shifting gears um, and said, okay, well, you know, as, as people that, as chiropractors and just people that focus on health promotion and, and wellness, one of the biggest things is, um, at least that I found and I see with other, other people is, is getting people's attention on their health. And usually it's a crisis that does that. And so then suddenly we're in this massive, you know, uh, facing a crisis anyways. Um, and everyone's attention was on it. I said, okay, well, if this is valuable, if this is a valuable, um, framework for people, then, then it should work in this setting too. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, and the and the title, "Screw Normal." Where what where did you come up with that, and what is that intended to communicate? Well, there's a couple of things. I initially had a title. Um, it's called is going to be called the New Normal. Why crisis is the best time to get better, and mm -hmm. and very similar to what we experience in the office. As patient comes in, in crisis, and you know you can put them back together. You can adjust them, correct their spine, and send them on their way without. Um, teaching them anything without helping them change their mindset or their really their life or their perspective. Um, and it's a great service, but at the same time just leaves a ton on the table. So I thought, you know, ultimately I was like, you know what, there's really no one, you know, it's not that we're necessarily doing hand the hands-on care of these ill people with COVID-19, but there's really no one that takes the perspective of, okay, someone is showing up to me in crisis and I'm going to put them on this new wellness path and just open up their their mind to where health and healing comes from, from inside their body. Um, and so then I did get some feedback from some people I respected that just the title was a little, uh, you know, it was just too similar to the terminology that was out there. And I think my frustration was really growing too with how we were responding to the events of this past spring and, and where our focus was. And that finally turned into screw normal. And screw normal really came from the idea that um, when we teach what health is, that health is normal. Like when Dr. Gunn says, says, you know, chiropractic works. And if you deliver it, you know, examine your, your delivery and you can find a way to make it work to get results. Um, and the reason why is because the body is ultimately always driving towards health and you just have to provide the right uh, circumstances for it. Whereas in society at large, it's almost almost completely flipped to where we say, you know, oh, I just have, you know, normal aches and pains and limitations for my age. This is just normal aging. I, I have these are my normal headaches. I take the normal amount of painkillers that normal it's it's normal to get sick. Um, and so um, 
we would use the phrase normal and healthy just completely linked. We would never use one without the other to, to reframe that for patients. And then the idea of screw normal really came around in my mind. It just kind of grabbed me and ultimately in a, in a sort of a logical framework, I realized that what we'd already done was say screw normal in general to the idea of being healthy. Because the big difference when we look at the new normal and, you know, we got really sold this idea that we're going to have to have permanent societal changes because of this pandemic. But we haven't had that before. We've had worse or similar um, pandemics in the last hundred years in this country, but we always bounce back to really, you know, decades of, of health improvements from that. Spanish flu was much worse, but over that, you know, hundred year period, there was huge, huge improvements in overall health and just the sort of strength and resilience and expectation of, of where people's health would go over time. But we haven't had that. It's actually been worse. And I think that what we are experiencing is really a crisis inside a crisis. And that bigger crisis is we completely lost focus on what health is. The health overall in this country has been backsliding, uh, depending on how you look at it for quite some time. And it's just completely unacknowledged. And so that was the idea of, you know, what screw normal means. We've just said screw normal to what health is. And the idea that we just get better and stronger and healthier over time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I mean, we've all heard patients describe their pains as normal, whether it's a normal headache or normal whatever. And in our heads, we know, well, that's not normal. That shouldn't be. Um, and for me, uh, you see your people that are unhealthy and you think, I wish I could help you. And maybe it's because they need better nutrition or need this or that. But one of the things I see a lot is when it comes to exercise, that I see people who are putting a lot of time towards exercise, but it's clearly not getting them what they want. And it might even be getting them injured because they don't really know what they need to do. And I don't have time to go hold them by the hand and help them. But I've, I often think that about exercise, that it takes a long time of exercising and actually being coached to really know where your personal limit is. So you know how to function at your limit without going too far past it. And yet if you're too far from the limit, you're really unfortunately just wasting your time. And it's really hard to figure out how do you communicate that to people that what you're doing and even your exercise is not necessarily normal in the sense that it's not necessarily healthy. And so I think that's a really good point to bring up that maybe we need to redefine all of this. Yeah, it really came from the idea that what we're being given, you know, as as a conversation, like, you know, if you think back, um, you know, into any time prior to what, a hundred years ago, what you knew was, it would have been a function of the people around you, you know, the conversation that you're having to people in your community. And it's not the same at all anymore. It's completely flipped where it's very easy to not even know your neighbors. And the thing that, you know, I don't want to say it's the majority of people, but a, a huge number of people, the thing that we have in common now is just popular culture and media. And so then they, that situation allows them to set the conversation. And I think that part of what we need to do is, is just start from their very, very beginning. And, and it, it helps to, to be able to interact with that conversation because that's what people are having, but know the conversation that we want to have. Um, and so I knew, I knew screw normal was a bit of an aggressive title, um, but I ended up, Ultimately, I said, you know what, I'm doing this because I want to start, you know, it's got to be something that gets enough a, a attention and enough to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to 
go into this with an open mind to find out what this is. And it's okay if for me, if they're, you know, people are a bit triggered around it because we have to take a different, in my opinion, we have to just get more savvy around the conversation that we're having. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have problems or illnesses or whatever, who don't really want to even acknowledge for some reason we make it personal. Like if you have a disease, well, that's a weakness on you. So then people then want to flip it and somehow make their infirmity actually be some kind of a strength or superpower. Mm. And yet you're looking at it going, no, but it's actually not. And we need to fix it. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we need to, we do need to address these things and, and see them for what they are. And yet it's not a personal slight to say that you have this or you have that. It's just an acknowledgement of reality. Yeah, it's fascinating you say that, especially in the light of exercise. And there's this book that I read, um, and I've done quite a bit of work out, out of called Convict Conditioning. Um, and it really, um, I've even used some of it, some of the easier aspects of it in the office with patients. And it was written by this guy, I want to say his name is Paul Webb. Hopefully I'm getting that right. But um, who spent 20 years in San Quentin and just some of these, like the, just the absolute worst prisons in their country. And that was one of the points he made was that it, in society, it's become sort of this badge of honor to have a weakness and say, well, I have this weakness, so I, you know, this is what I should get as a result of it. And what he's saying in prison was that it's completely the opposite. The last thing you ever wanted to do is show or admit or have any amount of weakness. And this is not in Screw Normal so much, but it was something in some of the, basically the works I'm going to put out after is that are pretty well outlined um, was that distinction. But what does, uh, how it does overlap is that it's the same thing of, you know, just this idea of crisis. You can just have a crisis and, and uh, you know, get rolled, basically, you know, a pandemic came through here and it could be terrible and awful. Or you can take it and say, okay, what wasn't working that allowed this to happen? Um, and what do we need to get better at? And um, so the idea that we use this crisis, okay, we're going to just be terrible and we just try to move on and go back to where we were, or we can go back and really examine what was happening and, and how we can just fundamentally make changes. Um, and that's that's one of them to say, okay, well, we have to just, each person, I, I can't imagine that people aren't, you still see it, it doesn't seem to have really latched on, but I can't imagine going through this whole thing and not saying, okay, it's really my, my responsibility to improve my own health, that there's not help that's coming. Yeah, I think another place where we mess up in the healthcare space is that we use the word we use average and normal inter interchangeably. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. like you think about blood tests, and you get the normal you get the normal yeah. range, but the normal range is actually an average range, and it's possible that everybody in there is sick. <laughs> so, um, in the so I basically <laughs> I've been working on my own book for the last nine years, and if I get nine more years, I might actually finish it. But in my research for doing that, I found this quote by Claude Bernard, which most people know who Claude Bernard is, but if they don't, he was a contemporary of Louis Pasteur and actually worked a lot with Louis Pasteur. In fact, some say he did more for fermentation than Louis Pasteur, but Pasteur took all the credit. So they were kind of like brothers where sometimes they agreed, sometimes they disagreed, but that's all good for science. Well, he had a quote in regard to averages that I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I must write this down. This is the most um, amazing answer to this whole thing. So here's what he wrote. He wrote, quote, by destroying the biological character of phenomena, the use of averages in physiology and medicine usually gives only apparent accuracy to the results. From our point of view, we may distinguish between several kinds of averages, 
physical averages, chemical averages, and physiological and pathological averages. If, for instance, we observe the number of pulsations and the degree of blood pressure by means of the oscillations of a manometer throughout one day, and if we take the average of all our figures to get the true or average blood pressure and to learn the true or average number of pulsations, we shall simply have wrong numbers. In fact, the pulse decreases in number and intensity when we are fasting and increases during digestion or under different influences of movement and rest. All the biological characteristics of the phenomenon disappear in the average. Chemical averages are also often used. If we collect a man's urine during 24 hours and mix all this urine to analyze the average, we get an analysis of a urine which simply does not exist. For urine when fasting is different from urine when digest when di during digestion. A startling instance of this kind was invented by a physiologist who took urine from a railroad station urinal where people of all nations passed and who believed he could thus present an analysis of average European urine. Aside from physical and chemical, there are physiological averages, or what we might call average descriptions of phenomena, which are even more false. Let me assume that a physician collects a great many individual observations of a disease, and then he makes an average description of symptoms observed in the individual cases. He will thus have a description that will never be matched in nature. So in physiology, we must never make average descriptions of experiments because the true relations of phenomena disappear in the average. When dealing with complex and variable experiments, we must study their various circumstances and then present our most perfect experiment as a type, which however still stands for true facts. In the cases just considered, averages must therefore be rejected because they confuse while aiming to unify and distort while aiming to simplify. Averages are applicable only to reducing very slightly varying numerical data about clearly defined and absolutely simple cases, end quote. <laughs> wow. I'm actually I'm taking notes on this right now. <laughs> I found that and I was like, that is the most brilliant and yet succinct explanation. And in my head, I, I found this years ago and I was thinking to myself, everything we do is based on averages. <laughs> so right. by his definition, we have no science. <laughs> That's amazing. Like I said, I'm taking notes on this right now that it really dovetails into what I'm working on conveying so well. And I haven't even run, a, run across that because when you talk about the difference between average versus normal, um, there's a perfect example like what they did, I believe it was last year or year before where they were finding so many low testosterone findings. They just said, well, this is the new normal. I, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but I think it went all the way down to 250 uh, um, I forget the units. I think it's, uh, what are the nanograms per, uh, per mil, but, uh, or micro or whatever, it, whatever the units are on that, but exactly the same. They just said, okay, well, we don't know if this is good, if this is healthy, if this is what, you know, it should be, if this is appropriate, but this is what it is. So this is the new normal. Yeah. And, the problem with new normal is we define disease as health now. Yeah. And exactly. It's just exactly like what you're saying in that quote. It is literally the function of baking in a health problem. I say, okay, well, this is normal, and if we look at it as as our expectation that sickness is our expectation, you just met, you just meet and match your expectations. Yeah, yeah, it really is a sad state of affairs that um, the number of times I have patients who ask, they go to their doctor and they ask them, "What can I do about this?" So even like a blood test is a good example. You get a negative blood test, and it's outside the average or normal range, and they're like, "Well, what can I do to fix it?" And they leave going, I'm even more confused than when I came in. <laughs> they, they don't get anything to actually help. So then you question, well, 
is it worth knowing if you can't do anything about it anyway? And I think people are becoming more skeptical, but at the same time, I think they're, this is what I think is sad about our times right now with COVID-19 and everything I see on Facebook and stuff. I think people are more skeptical of science now than they've ever been in my lifetime. Yeah, it's interesting. This whole COVID-19 experience has been really interesting for me and brought up a lot of memories. So I had, when I went to, uh, if you're asking me about how I got started in chiropractic school, I, this was in late 90s and early 2000s. I was working in Worcester, Massachusetts. It was right up the hill. It was big, big biotechnology park right up the hill from the UMass Medical School. And um, I was working for a startup and they eventually went under. This was after 9-11, and there was this period where the economy got really bad, and they, they couldn't weather it. There was, a, there was a major issue for tech and biotech at the time. And so that was ultimately when I was, had, to, had to make that decision. I was like, okay, do I completely pursue something new, um, which is chiropractic? Or, and I was interviewing for jobs at the same time. I got offered, I had a job offer from Quest to do development in... Um, basically developing assays for rare genetic diseases. And I remember being on the phone with them and they essentially were saying, you know, we will offer you more money. And I was like, no, it's not like, it's not, I'm not like taking another job. I'm like leaving this profession altogether. Um, and so I had done like tremendous amount at a very young age, really. I was in college uh, of PCR, like how they do the, how they do the actual PCR testing they call it molecular testing. I don't know how they settled on that name for it, but, um, so I had all this, you know, just sort of deja vu flashback of all that period of time, um, this whole spring. And yeah, I mean, just remember in that, in that setting, there was just no focus on health whatsoever. It was like, okay, where well, we are, we are developing technology that will help someone someday. But meanwhile, you know, you see some of the things that were going on. It was just total, you know, you, a knowledgeable junior high school student would have said, Hey, you guys are making giant mistakes in, in a uh, health field. Yeah. Has, that's... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I had a, a family member and they were on the um, board of the uh, mass general hospital institutional review board. So this is basically how they approve studies. And they just said, yeah, they would just roll in. And that was a nice meal because they'd have the meeting and review all the, all the data. And then it was just roll in the soda and the cake and the desserts and people were just crushing it. And it was like, at the same time, anything that was um, "quote unquote" alternative, it was around supplements or you know anything that would improve health, and it wasn't basically a drug treatment trial. They would just, you know, instinctively just uh, got a, a shade eye. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I discovered in my research was that um, they find when they study, they find some weird things like a doctor will only diagnose their patient as as being obese if the patient weighs more than the doctor. (laughs) That's funny and it's comical. And yet I can totally see how it would happen. So a doctor instinctively does not want to say that they're obese. So you can't definitely can't tell a patient who weighs less than you that they're obese because what does that mean about me? So, and then another stat had to do with the fact that most of the doctors die of the same things they spend their life preventing. So cardiologists die of heart disease and cancer doctors die of cancer. And it's like, well, how can you really be that great at what you do if you're dying of the same things? And why? Because you often have the same habits, like the old joke that if you go behind the hospital, you find all the doctors out there smoking. And yet they tell their patients to stop smoking. And you're like, where's the disconnect here? Yeah, it's amazing, really. You know, it's like that old saying, you know, you can't stare to the abyss, like looking, doing a bunch of the uh, legwork on this 
on this project and working on Screw Normal was, you know, you, you see the, it's hard not to get more and more frustrated really seeing a, a big section of it is, is the looking at the focus of where our health authorities have been and then how that affects the general population and then really re-examining that, you know, putting people in the place where they say, okay, this is where I can, you know, because people are still going to, you know, as chiropractors, we have, we understand we're at the extreme for the most part, you know, we're going to rely on our own ability to heal much more so and, and lay off medical interventions much so, much more so than other people. Um, but still putting patients and the public in a place where they can focus on their own health and the power inside their body that heals their body. Um, and I feel like this year has just been, you know, just hacked away at. So especially with, especially with children, um, just a whole generation growing up like this. I really wonder what the effect of that is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now that more and more research comes out and we're understanding the connection between psychological and how that affects physiology and how it does it through the vagus nerve and all this other stuff that, yeah, it, and during formative years, you're creating things to let last a lifetime. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what down the road, what kind of other, are they stronger or are they weaker? I, oh, I boy. can argue for either one. So this is my personal take on it. And I've gathered a lot of resources that back it up. And I have, I cite the ones that I think are the most powerful. But I, um, Boy, I've written this so many times, I'm blanking the name on it. But it was a report that came out last year in 2019. It was put out by Blue Cross Blue Shield on their uh, policyholders. So they reviewed all the data of when people used uh, healthcare, just that, you know, what appointments they were making, and they, you know, they anonymize it and they look for trends. And it, it was somewhat, it was actually very contradictory because they said, okay, it was looking at millenn uh, millennials. And I said, okay, well, you know, as they go through their 20s, they rate their health very high. You know, they say, okay, my self-reported health is, is very good. And they said it was very good, you know, compared to all the, all the things that they have um, collected in the past. But the thing that I could not believe, even that I, I already understand this, like that our health has really been backsliding, that the age when um, they found a pronounced and permanent decrease in health and quality of life based on how people were getting diagnoses, using healthcare, pursuing solutions to problems. You want to know the age? You want to take a guess? I'm guessing it's probably younger than it's ever been. It was 27. Yeah. I'm, if you plan to live to be 80, then middle age by definition would be 40. That's really young to be already on the downhill slide. Yeah, it's really young. And there's two things that jumped out at me about it. One, they don't use it, but I'm like, okay, well, that 27 is the new over the hill. And not yeah. only is it the yeah. new over the hill, it's already, we've already moved past that because this was a group, like these people are now in their basically early to mid 30s. So, you know, they have to retrospectively look at the data, right? So they're looking back. And I did like, you know, back of the envelope math. This was basically the last generation to, gr to grow up. that didn't nearly almost always have a mobile phone. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, what is that going to look like? And so exactly what you're saying, you know, there, we, you know, middle age and you kind of peak. And so that's what really what I was working on. And I had, I had this book and it was still, um, and I have something actually, because I went, it was not as long, but this is something like you said, nine years. I've basically been in a two-year cycle around this, and I bought $100 for 
essentially 30 emails, how to write a book in 30 days. And I'll share that with you after because it, it, uh, it, there was some very simple things that I realized I was making a mistake that I, cause I was in the same cycle of like, I go around and I work on it and I, and I couldn't do it. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, if I can't do it in the middle of this, uh, shutdown, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So that was the weird thing about the shutdown is that it seemed like I saw two different kinds of people. One set of people who just went into a complete vegetative state and they were about as active as their potted plants doing, except for when they got up to eat. Um, and they did nothing. Then there were the people who were like, you know what? I got this time. I'm going to pick one thing and I'm going to exaggerate it. So like for me, it was, um, I started doing cycling. So I was like, I'm going to increase my cycling. I'm going to increase my nutrition to match it. And I'm just going to focus on this one thing for a while. Um, for somebody else that I know, it was a musical instrument. I'm going to really focus on this and see if I can make big leaps forward. And it was funny to see that separation in people that either they come out of it going, man, I really went really far forward in this one area. Or it was like, I, I thought I was lazy before and I found new, new lows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely had, had aspects of that as well. And it was, it was really a gut check for me because I'd already been working on this similar project and it was really around this idea that it's, it's crisis that motivates. I mean, you have like, you know, I'm sure you know, Dr. Rick Elbert mm -hmm. um, yes. and I've heard him you know, use this phrase so many times that, you know, pain is a, you know, terrible indicator, but it's a tremendous motivator. Um, and sometimes yes. it is a good indicator and when you've got a really painful crisis staring in your face, you have to take advantage of that. Otherwise it's just, it's just leaving a major, like what I was seeing with, uh, with patients in the, in the office, I had it on this big whiteboard, um, along the lines of what, of what we just talked about. And I literally just wiped out the title and I was like, what, you know, what are you pursuing right now? Are you pursuing the new normal where it's just like the old normal, but kind of worse? Or are you pursuing like, how do you create a miracle? Are you chiropractic miracles? Well, it's a miracle when someone comes in and they, you know, they're raised under lifetime, uh, tremendous uh, go on to lifetime chiropractic care and get great tremendous health outcomes, but it's hard to see. The miracles are like, wow, this person was in terrible shape. We'd never, you know, they had no hope and they had a miraculous recovery. To have a miracle, you almost need a crisis. Yeah. And so if you have that crisis, it's really a time to take advantage of it. And what patients come in, I don't know if you've experienced this. And I, I was listening to some of your podcasts, which are fantastic, by the way. I don't know if I. Thank you. Took the time. To, I, I had a friend oh, of mine. I, <laughs> I Well, the ones, the ones I was listening to were just you. So. Oh. <laughs> um, but I had a friend of mine, my chiropractor, Dr. Dave, Dr. Dave LeClaire. He's in Westford, Massachusetts. He's a friend of mine from Palmer. We went together and interned with Dr. Troxel together. Great chiropractor. He has been telling me for quite some time. And I, for whatever reason, I'm always slow to implement the recommendations he gives. And they're always invariably good ones. So I was listening in preparation for this. I thought, oh my, this is, this is like, did not expect how good these were, um, how good, how good these podcasts are. Well, I, hopefully it's helping people to learn. Um, and actually, to be honest, I might as well share with everybody. I, I, we have listeners all around the world and I get emails from people all around the world. Um, and one of the things that's kind of amazing to me is that just recently, um, Almost a t almost uh, ten percent of the listeners are in Australia. Really? So oh, yeah. It re it's really it's really the kind of thing where I know that for me, I think it's just filling the vacuum you had when I started in practice. I would have killed for something like this where I could hear from people feeding into me because I know yeah. that the learning process is slow, and if you get too much at one time, it's like trying to drink through a fire hose. 
it just goes all over the place and you don't actually benefit from any of it. So it's actually better to have the slow trickle where you get a little bit and you kind of implement it and you get a little bit and that's so much more effective for learning in the end. So um, I figure, well, and it's a great opportunity to get some people who are um, really knowledgeable um, to throw some of their information out there for people. So we have it forever as more and more generations come along and learn. Well, I'm a big fan. I'm going back and going through all of them. I was listening to your um, high value practice podcast and I have somewhat independently come to a lot of the same mindsets without, uh, as, as far as I can tell, implementing them to the same, <laughs> to the same degree. So yeah, I'm looking forward to delving down, uh, down deeper on those. Yeah. So here's another area that I think is interesting. Um, my, when my wife was in residency, she had to spend time in the ER and it was interesting because she actually spent time in, an, in she did a couple of week rotation in the ER. She had hospital privileges because she had to do surgery in the hospital sometimes. So she had ER privileges. She also had to spend a couple, um, couple of uh, weeks with a pediatrician. And it was funny when she would come home and give me her observations. Um, some, they were, they were, they were good, but it was from an outsider on the inside. It was very interesting. But with the ER, one of the things she was just telling somebody this the other day, she said on the ER, even the ER doctors would tell her that it used to be in the old days, the ER doctors were dealing with things like broken limbs mm. and um, cardiac arrest, um, sa basically saving people's lives or fixing things they can't fix on their own, those kind of things. Nowadays, most um, ER visits are drug overdose, mm. um, people who have, um, I don't know what, I can't think of the proper term for it, but basically psychological problems right, and they're right. probably either, either not on enough meds or on too many meds or not on the right meds. So basically they're dealing with a lot of that. And it brought me back to realizing that, yes, we are probably more drug addicted now than we've ever been. And we get these uh, patients who so come in true. and they have, they have their pain or they have their whatever. And well, of course I took this. So here's one. Um, and again, I only know this because I, my wife <laughs> during her residency, one of the courses, she used to have these modules that were done on the internet. So she, and being the way it is, she'd be like, come look at this. Like she had one with an oral surgeon and he would like basically put people's faces back on. So I'm in the middle of eating my wife's like, come look at this. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but she would show me these things. Well, one of them was by a guy who knew drugs and this guy was phenomenal with his drug knowledge. But he also was very frustrated because he couldn't understand why people didn't know this. So he taught something that I think is hugely important when it comes to something as simple as ibuprofen, which, as he pointed out, is technically called ibuprofen, but nobody says it that way. Mm. So he says you only say it that way if you want to be a nerd. Otherwise, you just call it ibuprofen. But he said, I don't know why more doctors don't know this and prescribe it this way. But he said ibuprofen is unique because 400 milligrams is the maximum effective dose for painkilling. So if you're trying to kill pain, you should never take more than 400 milligrams. Hmm. It's unique in the fact that at 150% of the maximum effective dose, it now has um, anti-inflammatory properties. So to get the proper anti-inflammatory effects from ibuprofen, you have to take 600 milligrams and you have to take it every six hours. And it'll be, it'll be three doses or 18 hours before the effect even kicks in. And then he asked, why in the world does every doctor on the planet give people 800 milligrams of ibuprofen? It's useless. And then he said, I can tell you why, because the maximum amount that you can have in a day is 2,400 milligrams. So by giving you 800 milligrams, you take it three times and you hit 2,400 milligrams. The problem is there's no magic key to hitting 2,400 milligrams. That's actually the stay away zone. 
Right. So why are you intentionally trying to get people there? So he went on about this, about how this is not effective dosing. And so I have patients come in all the time telling me, oh, I took 800 milligrams and I'm taking it like every three or four hours. And I'm thinking you're going to overdose and you're going to hurt yourself. And even though drugs are not my thing, I need to give you a warning because you have no professional help and you're going to get yourself in big trouble because they don't even know that 2400 is the maximum. And it just keeps bringing me back to people are really, really drug addicted. And that's definitely not helping the situation. That's amazing, actually. I So I had this experience when I was in high school. I was playing basketball um, on the high school team, and I was really tall and lean. I was My first driver's license is 6'4", 165 pounds. <laughs> and I was not a very skilled basketball player. Um, I didn't have as much experience as a lot of kids, but I had, I had read – Larry Bird's book, Drive, his autobiography or biography, I should probably, and uh, I was just enthralled by it. Like he, I mean, he's guy was such a hard worker, obviously. And I grew up outside Boston, and and uh, at the time, I, I'm really not a pro sports fan at all these days. But um, it had a huge effect on me, and I really pursued it, and I struggled at one point really badly with my knees. And we went into the family doctor, the medical doctor that we'd always used, and got a bunch of questions. Gave me an exercise, which literally, I mean, I was like playing and training when I wasn't in school, this is what I was doing. Give me one exercise. It was literally like tie. It was a straight leg razor, tie a dumbbell to my leg with a, like anything I have at the house. I think I was using like a, uh, uh, waist tie to a robe. It was like, <laughs> but the <laughs> other thing that he gave me was ibuprofen. He gave me an 800 milligram prescription. And I took it home. I remember looking at it. That was before I had, you know, really any of the knowledge I had now. My father was a scientist. So I had some background, but I was a high school kid. And I looked at the ibuprofen on, you know, just the over-the-counter stuff that was sitting around in the medicine cabinet. And it says, don't exceed this dosage. And I knew that there were things you shouldn't do and read the instructions or whatever and whatnot. And I was like, okay, so really the recommendations I got from my family doctor was just do what the instructions on the package, that the stuff that you get at the store says not to do. Yeah. And I had no, I knew nothing about chiropractic at that point, but it, it really was one of several things that really cemented in my mind. I was like, okay, I don't understand. <laughs> this does not make sense to me. I just want to play. And I thank God, you're talking about the overdoses. I thank God that taking it didn't work. That didn't help. It really didn't make a, a difference for me because I would have done, I would have said, okay, take more. It just, you know, obviously that warning didn't make any, you know, wasn't a real warning because why not? And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I was that savvy enough to know at that point, you know, people would be taking other medications or have other contraindications or whatever the case is. But I, I would, you know, 16, 17 year old me that wanted to play basketball mo most likely would happily basically abused it to do what I wanted to do. And I thank God that it didn't make a difference. Yeah. I, I had something kind of, so actually mine might even be worse. I don't know. I, when I was a junior in high school, um, I started my senior, my junior year of football and I was six one I six one, six two, I'm somewhere around there. Um, and about 175 pounds and I needed to gain weight. So I started taking a supplement and I didn't know it at the time. I believed because I believed because I mean this would have been in the uh, um, very early, like right around nineteen ninety. So things were pretty still loose and free when it came to um, labeling. <laughs> um, I believed that it was a supplement, shall we say? Um, it was almost like more like straight testosterone. So I was basically taking steroids um, and lifting weights and it worked marvelously because um, <laughs> I gained a ton of weight um, and it didn't take long. I, I'm trying to think by the time when I started my freshman year of college, 
I was, um, when I started my first, my freshman year of college, I was 17 and I was 210, 215. So wow. I packed on and it was pretty much all muscle. And I packed, and I thought I was just kind of some kind of like lucky freak of nature that, dude, I just lift weights and I packed on muscle. It's awesome. <laughs> this weightlifting is amazing. <laughs> I had no idea that one day um, I had my little jar of supplement in my backpack and somebody stepped on it and broke it. So I was out and I couldn't get any more immediately. So I thought, well, no big deal. I'll just wait and I'll get more. It didn't take long. And I was doubled over in the fetal position. I remember because I remember laying on the couch and there was a Raider game on and I couldn't watch it. Um, because I was staring at my feet and I was in so much pain and I basically was going through withdrawals and it wasn't until I went through withdrawals that really? I realized what I've been doing the whole time. And, um, that's amazing what damage it did, but I'm still alive for now, I guess. Uh, so, but I've always thought, well, who knows what damage it did, but it probably did affect some stuff because I didn't know. I didn't, I thought that because I got it from a health food store, that it was a health food supplement. And, and that was when I first started being like, you know, not everything that has a powerful effect is just inherently good for you. And that's when I started waking up to that reality. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> that was, but, so, yeah. So you were getting out of high school in 1990. Is that? Uh, I graduated in 93. Yeah. I mean, Raiders. I remember I'm being in school and, you know, they're showing us Lyle Alzado's uh, interviews and saying, I can, right. what, what did he have? Kidney cancer. What, is that what it was? Oh, uh, I can't remember. One of those. <laughs> Yeah, and then him and John Matuzak, and like you had Raider defensive players dropping like flies because at that in the late 80s, it's like that's just what you did. It was kind of like smoking in the 40s. Like, this makes us healthy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got this good stuff for you. It really, you know, the, the professional sports aspect of it, I think, has had such a powerful influence on our culture that we have this idea that we are so much better than we were in the past. And we, you know, in a lot of ways we are, obviously our technology is so much better and, you know, resources and, you know, a lot of what we have, but it's so easy to look at, you know, if it's the NFL, the NBA, you know, the Olympics, these unreal athletes, you know, people that just couldn't even, you know, the best, the best athletes like from, you know, 10, 20 years ago or how are you 30 years ago, definitely couldn't even remotely compete. Like I, I spent when even more recently in, in like 2008 through 10, like the very early days of CrossFit, I was really into it and trained, I was training almost every day and getting out of the office or before the office, whatever the case is. And the best CrossFitters then, I mean, they would just be run of the mill today. Mm -hmm. And so I think what happens is it's so easy for that to translate over to people thinking, well, yeah, of course, we're just way, way, we're way better than we used to be. And there's been this real schism where it's almost like, you know, economic inequality where it's really concentrated. If you are in good shape and you have the ability to improve, like you're saying, you know, it's like these days, uh, you know, you can dial yourself in and in very strategic ways, you know, if it's supplementation or training styles or whatever it is, it's just simple things to make huge gains. And you have people in their forties doing these amazing things, but that's not the majority of people. And it's not necessarily the bulk of who we see in the office, unless you're a real sports oriented person. It's, I think the bulk of the, of the population is actually really backsliding going in the direction and that athletics and the achievements there are part of what makes it harder for people to see that. Yeah. I've, I've thought a lot of times I have a lot of patients do CrossFit and I've often thought if you spent the first 30 to 40 years of your life doing relatively nothing, and then you suddenly hit CrossFit as hard as you can, that's probably not good for you. Mm. You actually need to work some levels up to that 
before you start really going at it. So I, I've always thought that where you are as a probably in your late teen years kind of determines where you can go later on. Um, Cause I have some people that they tell me, Oh, I'm doing tons of deadlift. I'm thinking deadlift. You're not an Olympic lifter uh, and you're not really conditioned for it. It's just, it, it, there's some weird stuff, but uh, I know people think that extreme exercise produces extreme health or extreme diet produces extreme health. And that's kind of the fad we're in is that people think the way to get extremely healthy or extremely fit is to do things to the extreme. Right. And that's really not how professional athletes even train. Yeah, it is. I learned this concept. I'm sure it's out there in many different ways. I trained with these, uh, not even just you know physical training. It was this coaching group. Uh, Garrett J. White runs this group called Wake Up Wake Up Warrior. Um, and there's a lot of different chiropractors in it. it was a, I learned a lot. It really helped me in a lot of ways. But one thing that I, a concept that I learned from them, because um, they do a lot of business-oriented stuff and, and a lot of it's marketing, was the idea that you should be ready to solve the problems of, of your pay, of your I say patients, but you know, your customers, because you know what they're going to be mm-hmm. like getting better. Like the, you buy something great. Like I got my son a, you know, I don't know if you know what the a one wheel is. No, like, uh, I don't know. You might, you probably seen it, but not the name. So it looks like a big skateboard with a giant wheel in the middle. Oh uh, yes. I've seen that. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's called a one wheel. So my neighbors, uh, this is an older neighbor, but his son is a little bit younger than me, had one. We have this big grassy yard between the two houses. And he brought one last year. And we were we were riding it around the yard, and my son rode it all over. You know, it took him a little while to get into it. It's just a big grassy field. They're actually kind of dangerous. But um, <laughs> so it was just, just turf, so it was easy. And so I finally got him. They came out with a smaller version, and I got him. They're, they're like a little pricey uh, for his eighth birthday. I found one on Craigslist. And got him one. And so I'm writing it too. I'm like, you know, I was like, this is like a family gift, you know? And one of the things that's in Screw Normal, it's also probably more in the book that I was actually writing that's going to come out later, but before it came up was the idea that, and I, I really came upon this a lot doing the work for Mike and Amy Hamilton at Inception was that um, when you when you feel better, you want to do more. And I'm like, I'm just the worst example of that. Like when I'm feeling great, I'm like, yeah, I want to see how fast I can go on this thing. And I finally fell. It's about a week and a half ago. And I, I'd fallen a few times and taken tumbles, but uh, this one was, was basically like throwing myself out of a car at 15 miles an hour. <laughs> so getting adjusted extra, I'm kind of trying to get it turned around. And then, you know, every adjustment, it was like all these you know, bruised ribs and I just subluxated my mid back all, all up, down and sideways. And so every adjustment, it just feels like getting kicked in the back with a steel toed boot. I'm like, yeah, it's feeling real good about myself. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it, it's true. We do do that. And, uh, and then, but then when people, when they do stuff like that, a, a, lot, a lot of people do is they just figure, well, it'll go away. And that's, what's funny is it's like, we, like we talk about innate and the healing forces and those kind of things. And so you would think that people were thinking along those lines, but they're really not. They just have this idea of it'll go away and then it doesn't. And then they don't know what to do because yes, the body will heal when it's all working right. But that particular pain is an indication that it's not working right. So you got to do something else. And it's, there's those connects there that um, people just have not been trained to think that way. They think in terms of a fast bandaid that they could put on it. Yeah. You know, I, I, this is actually this morning and I was working on some final aspects of, of screw normal. And it really hit me. And I don't know if I can even articulate this the way that it occurred to me this morning, but 
I was thinking about that and I was just looking at all the ways that I was outlining for people that it was newer to the idea, the inside out, inside out idea of chiropractic and that the healing comes from within. So you get this, you know, what we've all been through this year and the coronavirus pandemic, and you have plenty of people that are like, Hey, you know, it's important to stay healthy and I'm going to focus on healthy lifestyle in the middle of this. And I mean, it's a small subset, but at the same time they've done it. I was like, okay, so what is the real value for those people? You know, outside of, you have this idea of the chiropractic, you know, it's related. It's okay. It really inside out came from chiropractic because you delivered the adjustment and then, and figured it out afterwards. But for patients, it's kind of the other way around. You know, you go into the office, you, you start to hear about the, the principle of chiropractic and then you get delivered care over time. So it's like, okay, you know, what, where is the highest value for these people? You know, they're just encountering this in sort of a, a content based where they're not, they haven't even yet experienced chiropractic. And it's just like this emergent property like life. You know, you can look at like, okay, the kind of molecular pieces of, of life. And then you actually look at what a living thing is. You're just like, how do you get from A to B? It's the same thing. You say, okay, well, teach someone the inside out principle. And then you would go from there to, you would, it would be very difficult. Like you could go and just give a very vitalistic talk to someone that didn't have chiropractic and they would not come up with it. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, how do you make this, this leap? Um, but what finally hit me on a really deep level, like when we got, happened with this coronavirus pandemic and how it affected the elderly and how we really, we have this amazing society and we just suck at aging for the most part. Like we've just gotten really sucky at it. And I, it just hit me like what a key that is that you can say, because people know there's there's nobody that doesn't know that, okay, you know, move more and move better and eat better and get better results. Mm -hmm. But who is really sitting down and being like, you know what? you are a miracle and that is right inside you. And there's, it's not a, you know, do things that are harder so you can prolong your misery. Cause there's a lot of people that aren't happy. Like you're saying with drug overdoses and, and psychological, you know, anxiety and depression issues. Those are some of the biggest things when they looked at, at what was happening in these younger people and why their health was backsliding. A lot of it was these anxiety and depression issues. And it just hit me the connection between our society, society wide issue of just how bad we've started to fail the aging process. Like we can live, but we don't, you know, we're not really successfully doing it in so many cases. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the hard thing. Cause you get patients who are like, um, they'll come, they'll say, I think people get this idea of all or nothing. So they say, well, my knees hurt so bad that, I can't run a full marathon, so I'm not going to do anything at all. And you're like, well, there's a lot of gray area between those two extremes. And that is an extreme example. But you just start working back. Okay, you can't run a marathon. Can you run this far? Can you, and take it back to 5K, whatever. Well, you can't run a 5K. You can't run at all. Okay, can you walk around the block? No. Can you walk up and down the hallway? Like, at some point, there's something you can do. Do that. And for me, um, I think it was, uh, what was it? It was over a year now, about 15 months ago. Um, that I was in the hospital for five days and I was really, really sick. Um, and before that I was on, I was, I had my gallbladder removed. So I was, I had wounds and I couldn't do anything. So I actually, that's probably a better example. So after I had my gallbladder removed and I had these three stab wounds in my abdomen, uh, I couldn't do much, but one day, I mean, one week after, um, after my surgery, I felt like I would needed to start moving and doing something. So I got back on the bike 
and I had no intention of being where I was before. I just wanted to create some movement. So I went really, really low, really, really easy and really, really short. And I thought anything is better than nothing. And as soon as it doesn't feel right, I get off. But now I've set a baseline. And then tomorrow I'm going to try to do a little bit more and a little bit more. I just need to set a baseline and then start moving. And it's funny to me, a lot of people aren't able to do that. They can't get to the point of just figuring out, well, what can you do? Start with that, set a baseline, and then try to challenge from there. Instead, it becomes, well, I don't feel like I can do the thing I want to do, so I'm just not going to do anything at all. And that's where you start the downward slide. Yeah, it's just, that's exactly hits the nail on the head. It's the, you know, the idea that, you know, people aren't buying drills, they're buying holes. And so people are coming to the office and the lay public's not necessarily coming in, you know, they're not coming in for adjustments. They're coming in for the results that they want to get out of it. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, the value of an inside out perspective to health, it just really hit me kind of really deep in a way that, you know, you, you, you know, in a way as a chiropractor, you already have this huge value for something. Uh, man, you know, I think that that is just an unbelievable missing element in what we need in, okay, what do you take across your life? Like what, a, you know, that, like you said, it's, it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to get what you want. And that's a hard, you know, that's a hard thing to face to say, and I think that's what hits people. I think it's a, a big, big reason why um, we're starting to see these just big, broad poor outcomes that people are just generally doing worse. And one of the, one of the studies I cite in the, in screw normal in the book was from the end of 2018. So it was literally like exactly one year before the coronavirus pandemic started in uh, China. And they said, they said it was axiomatic that uh, health improves over time in a modern society and that we had, we were just seeing a failure of it. Um, and it's exactly what you're saying. Like, okay, I just have this respect for the nature of who I am. Like we really just get back to understanding what we are um, as a being. Um, and we've lost so much of it. And it's, yeah, it just shows up just the smallest thing and I say, okay. And that those things build and build over time. And it's just, um, you know, the massive compounding of a positive or negative effect like that. Yeah, it's hard because the human condition is to, I don't want to call it laziness, but it's to go yeah. flow. and entropy is taking us away from order. So if the stream is flowing with entropy and the stream is flowing towards chaos and disorder, moving against that flow takes energy and takes a tremendous amount of energy. And there's never a point at which it doesn't. And so the more you get in the mode of just going with the flow, the easier it is to be with the flow and the faster you pick up speed flowing downhill. And um, BJ had a quote that the past of least resistance makes men and rivers crooked. I thought that was a great right. quote because right. that's what happens is you just float downhill. And as you pick up speed, it just becomes easier and easier just to float and not turn and be like a salmon swimming uphill uh, and swimming against the current. And that is the hard thing is that the natural process is actually taking us to disease. It's not naturally taking us to health. You have to actually create effort because you think about all the things that create that create health. Exercise takes effort. Controlling your diet, having self-discipline, those things, they all take effort. Um, all of that stuff takes effort. Whereas sitting on the couch, watching TV and eating whatever you can grit your hands on <laughs> is nice and pleasant, but it doesn't take a lot of effort. And I think we become a 
uh, comfort and even pleasure driven culture where if, if like choosing foods, well, what food are you going to eat? I'm going to eat the thing that gives me more pleasure rather than eating the thing that gives me more health. And what are you going to do for exercise? Well, I'm going to do the thing that gives me pleasure, not necessarily the thing that creates the greatest health. And that letting pleasure drive the process is part of the problem. Yeah, I think that we have, as chiropractors and chiropractic, really have a massive, massive role right now. Um, and it was something where I, like I told you, I literally, I, I saw it. Um, I started a Kickstarter for the book and I, I basically did sort of a soft launch and realized I wanted to get some of the promotional materials. So this will it'll probably really launch when you launch this podcast. Um, but I just really knew, I knew that we have a critical role to play right now. Um, and you know, the, all of the focus has been on critical care medicine, but it's the, it's, I, I'm trying to remember where it comes from now, but it's the the classic uh, poem, really, of uh, um, you know fences versus ambulances. And it's the town that you know has the ambulances that pick people up as they fall off the hill, um, and the people that said, "Hey, we need to build a fence, and we need to, as chiropractors, you know, not delivering care and helping people get healthy, and have to have our message shared." And I started that Kickstarter and I saw this guy was selling a thing. It was a hundred bucks, write a book in 30 days. And I was just it's like, I need to get this thing out here. And just like you're saying nine years, it's so easy to go and try to make it perfect. Keep working, you know, be a little unclear. And this is the time is now, like it's not even now, like we're past the time I had. I think one of the things that was most dramatic for me on that end, we had a, when we first started getting out, and socializing. I have two boys, eight and five years old. They just both had birthdays during this whole thing. A play date with their friends. And the other family has kids about the same age. And the younger boy and the other and the other family, super, super nice people. But the three three other kids, my two and their older, ran across these like kind of like tire obstacle course. And he looked at his mom. And I don't say this to be critical because they're, they're wonderful people. But he looked at his mom and he said, Mom, can I walk over on that? Because he knew that they had these other kids had been there, and he wasn't sure if it was safe or okay, a good thing to do. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, I was like, it's heartbroken. I mean, he, this is something that's going to be, you know, we need to do it now, and it's. I really think it's going to be a generational project to, you know, it's not to, it's just to reorient some level of focus and understanding of where where health comes from. And I don't, I don't even get engaged and involved in the book is not really a, you know, a, a tirade against uh, masks or, you know, some of the things that we've done. I, I, you know, I don't know. There's, I, I don't have that strong a position on some of that stuff because a study could come out and say, okay, this is helpful to some degree. And then if I hung my hat on that right. as the, you know, kind of, okay, this is make or break. Well, I don't, I'm a, you know, I am, I have personal beliefs as a person, but I'm also a healthcare provider and I have a responsibility to say, okay, I want these people to get positive outcomes. I'm not going to say, okay, don't do this just because it, it might not be beneficial in a ton of circumstances that they're using it. And it has some benefit somewhere that, so I, I, I was really a process for me to come back and say, okay, what is the bedrock of what's most important? And so much of it was just the chiropractic message. Yeah. Yeah, and as you were saying earlier, if patients are coming for pain relief, and I, I think of all the times people have come where 
as you said, they just want what they want. Well, if they what they want is pain relief because they've already gotten a cortisone shot or this or that, and now they want us to be the next treatment that tries to give them pain relief, but they're missing the bigger point of what we're trying to do and, and a higher level of physiology and actually restoring normal normal physiology, normal biomechanics, normal neurology, normal all of this stuff, they're kind of missing the entire point of, of the benefit because I know that they're used to that with so many things in medicine. That's how it works. And that's kind of been how we've taught it works. But it's kind of hard to teach that chiropractic paradigm to people because they've been so ingrained in this other way of thinking. Uh, and especially now I'm finding, uh, again, not to be critical of anybody, but the general public has a very low level of understanding of how viruses and the immune system actually work. And that's probably, that's what I've been picking up more than anything from what I've seen. Yeah. You mentioned having, uh, Dr. Dan Lyons on, and I saw something that he had, um, he had spread on social media several times. I had never seen it before, but it was a study, I think it was in from Korea that talked about the number. I mean, I'm obviously familiar with, you know, just, you know, the idea of the patients come in and they're like, I got a germ and I got sick. It's like, no, you're filled with germs all of the time. So is everyone else and they're everywhere, but it was it quantified how, just how many viruses were just in the air. Yeah. And I was like, this is shocking. Like I knew like, it's not a, uh, uh, you know, I'm not foreign to the idea that they're just everywhere, but it just, the amount of it, I was really, you know, I was taken aback by it. And yeah, that, that is just really, it's just so, there's so many baked in concepts. Um, so I think that it's just really valuable that we need to be able to, like, that's what I said. I think this podcast is, it's fantastic in the execution and the quality of it, but also in the, just the mission of it, that we really need to be storytellers and not in a way to, um, you know, just try to hack down another paradigm, but, but to be able to compare and contrast and say, this is what you're missing. Like you can, you know, you can have this one-sided view um, or open up a completely new paradigm for people and it changes everything. And they're not, you know, some of them will for absolutely become chiropractors. Um, but uh, it's funny, you know, it's one of the things I, I learned doing all the, when I was emailing my patient list was who values it the most. Like they'll never value it more than we do. But it is like you're saying, you're getting so many people that were, that were, uh, when we were talking beforehand that were listening that weren't students or chiropractors, mm -hmm. the quality of the, you know, of opening up our conversation allows it to, you know, maybe if we're at like, like this level of 90% or a hundred percent go from, you know, 20 or 50 or 70 up a whole new category because they can consume it in a way that is just a whole new option. Because what I found when I was, I was ultimately, I was like, well, I will use this email list and I will build my practice and this will work great. Um, cause I'm getting good feedback and I really enjoy doing it. And the people that were most excited about it were other chiropractors. Yeah. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and I was excited. I was great in that, but it, it did, uh, um, set me on this path of saying, okay, how, how do we communicate this to the public? Cause I love it. I mean, you, it's like you go to a seminar and you can talk all night and, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, we could go on for another hour, you know, we're not going to, but I, <laughs> it would be so easy to do. Yeah. But it's the, it's the mechanisms of, okay, how do we take this message? Um, and so I was just finding ways of what, what resonated with me. And, um, and I, have, I, I know that I tend to look at things in very sort of complicated, complex terms. And it's like Reggie Gold would say to make it simple. And for some reason, I just suck at that. So I had to figure out, okay, how can I take these sort of big, broad, I just think in these 
big, broad structural frameworks and try to nail it down in a way that I can take a, someone from the general public and walk them right through. And no more time do we need that now. Yeah, when I first started in practice, I, fe- I knew I wasn't the best adjuster and I knew I had lots of weaknesses. But the thing that I felt like when I really honestly assessed myself, I felt like my greatest weakness was in communication. And mm-hmm. how am I going to communicate this chiropractic principle to people? And even then, I knew enough about communication to know that it's not really about how I say it. It's about how they hear it. So I started doing experiments, and anybody can do this. I would say it in the way that made the most sense to me, but then I would observe their response so I could understand how they were hearing it. And then when I understood how they were hearing it, then I could figure out how to tweak the way I said it to come up with a better result. So I did that over years and years and kind of honed it. And it's funny now I have students come and follow me and I just rattle off the same rhetoric over and over and over and over. And I think that they think I'm just saying it because that's just the way I say it, but they don't know all the years that went behind coming up with the idea that this is how I say it for them to hear what I need them to hear. Because if you just say it, you're going to quickly find out you don't get the same result. It's and such so a you have to figure it out. Such a valuable skill set. I think it's a rare skill set too. That like I know for myself, I, when I can tell you flat out, I was not a good adjuster. I, I had a great concept, I think, in my head of of um, gone said chiropractic and from the training that I had, I had had. Um, I mean, I remember like literally more or less skipping class on Friday for an entire semester to follow Larry Troxel around Dr. Larry Troxel because we would get, when we interned and we'd get assigned different times, um, it would be like once a week, uh, it was, and it was Dr. It was T or Dr. Pam Troxel and we would do it in Parkview or Clinton. And I realized I was like, you know what? I can study this stuff in my own time. And I would just spend all morning up there and just taking advantage of opportunities like that. But I was like, I told you, like, just talking earlier about being a basketball player. I actually wrote an email about this. It, like, really, it was so funny because it was like so many parts of my life that all kind of came together and hit me. I was like, oh my god, I never thought of this this way before. But I was a soccer goaltender in high school, varsity, um, and a basketball player, and I was basically notorious for having really bad hands. It's comical <laughs> when I think of it. <laughs> but also, like you're saying, you had had that strength of communication. I was also not a good communicator and it's something I had to really train on. Uh, and when I was working with Dr. France and it helped just, uh, ama- you know, it was just worlds, but I sat down and I was, I wrote this email and I was kind of going back through, just, I would think about, I would really tell them in these kind of story formats and it hit me. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, like I was big and I was, I wouldn't, I don't want to say it was fast, but like my specialty in, as a goalkeeper was a, as a breakaway, you know? And so someone came and there was this point where he, you would time it and say, okay, at this point you just sprint and take them on. Like you don't wait and you don't sit back. And I was really good at that, but then I would just blow it. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> missed it. You know? And I say, hey, I was like, Oh my God. At one point I never considered it. I was like, yeah, I was a turnover machine as a basketball player and I was a goalkeeper with bad hands. I was like, yes, chiropractic is where I'm going to hang my hat. But I, <laughs> it's comical, right? But it really forced me in a lot of ways to, to evaluate things on, a, uh, uh, you know, you see some people are just naturals and they just take it and run with it and build a big practice. And it's like, but I think I really had to evaluate just, just painstakingly so many different things. So it, it's really just the theme of like, like uh, what I've been producing is, you know, how to take those challenges and make them work for you. Um, Cause that's how patients come to us. And I think there's just so much value in saying, okay, I will 
accept this challenge, take it on. And this is how I've started framing it with patients when at certain points where they come in and you hear it, the patients will say, yeah, you know, if you ask them what they want to say, well, or sometimes when patients are struggling, they'll say, I just want to, you know, I'd love to just get back to before this happened. It's like one, you can't go back and you how the body's always going forward. So you can heal and repair, but you can't go back. And two, people are basically just wishing to go back to the period of time. And this is exactly where we were at societally to a time when we were creating a giant crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, so I've, I've been really working on re- reframing people and say, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a crisis. And the last thing, the last thing that you want to do is go back to that time because yeah. you were blindly careening into a crisis without realizing. Yeah. When I was about two years in practice at that time, I probably wanted to be anywhere but in my office because I, you get frustrated from the struggles of trying to become a better adjuster. You're now having to deal with case management that you didn't really have to in school. And you're like, why are these people not getting better? What, how am I applying it wrong? I felt like my communication was garbage because I was saying what I thought I needed to say and nobody was understanding me. They were misunderstanding me. And the more I spoke, the worse it got. And I was like, I really couldn't think of any area where it could get worse. <laughs> I was like, it's pretty much the worst it could get. Um, and there was like this point where I was like, okay, so what are you going to do? Either you give up and all that, all the time and effort has been wasted or you dedicate yourself to becoming the best you can in these three areas. Because if you focus on becoming the best adjuster that you can possibly be, you focus on understanding the same kind of process as the communication. I'm going to apply this adjustment. I'm going to apply one adjustment if need be. Like as a student, I realized the tendency is if you're adjusting people and they're not getting better, your tendency is to want to do more adjustments. Right. And yet right. the real solution is to do fewer. Right. Do just That's one exactly thing. Right. And then see, does that help or did that make it worse or did that stay the same? And then you'll slowly start to pick the pieces up and figure out, okay, when I do this, I get this result. And you basically rewalk Gonstead's steps and you refigure out how the whole thing works. And now you're getting better in that area. And then the communication, you say what you need to say, you hear how they hear it, you hear it from their perspective and you go, how could I say that differently to get them from where they ended up to where I actually wanted to be? How do I tweak that? And as those three things get better, Life gets so much better. People start getting better and everything starts to develop. And that really is the process of becoming good at this is that, going through those steps. Those are, two, like, those are two amazing points that it took me a very long time to, to get to. Like we, me too. When I, I, I'm going to recap. And I, I don't want to run too late because I know we're, uh, we're, 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 we're running long. But no, we're good. <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll preface it by saying this. When I, when I was shadowing Dr. Troxel, he would adjust three segments, almost invariably. If he was parasympathetic, he wouldn't. It would be, he would stick to the system. Um, uh, so it'd be, you know, top and bottom. But, and I had that in my head and it took me a long time to realize, one, it's a lot harder to deliver just in terms of like literally the amount of work. Way, way harder to deliver three very good adjustments than it is to deliver one. And ultimately, I, I, I found that concept like to the point where I had this conversation. I don't maybe it was on the one of the Gonstead Facebook pages, or I, I don't remember who it was with. I did, uh, or maybe it was a, a, a call I did with the guys at Sherman or the students over there, and they're asking about it. It's like, okay, how do you deal with the patient that you know? If anything, they seem like they're going backwards. They don't seem to tolerate the adjustments well. 
exactly the same. And I've really taken it to a point where it's like, okay, if someone's responding poorly, I'm going to dial it back extremely. And if I can get to the point where it really, um, I think, becomes especially valuable for, you know, students or young docs too, where, or someone like I was, it took me a while, I'm, you know, I, I, a lot of times I'm not even worried about the audible, but where if I can get a really outsized re- symptomatic response, where patients leave and they're like, okay, great, you know, I'll see you next time, thanks. And they won't say it then, but they'll come back and they'll be like, yeah, I didn't think you did anything and I can't believe how much better I am. Yeah. It's just no more clear indicator to me to say, okay, that's exactly what a patient's body needed because I, it was like so light. I was like, okay, just breathe on something and make this huge change. And then that gives you the window to say, okay, great. Now we know what we're dealing with and now we know what we're working with. But I did want to bring back that point that you made earlier. And I, I, if you are, because I, there's another thing that I was terrible at in that communication aspect. I wanted to be good so badly that it was hard for me to listen to the patient. Like you're saying, like you ultimately you were able to just step back in that communication and say, okay, how did what I just conveyed come across? And I think a lot of times, I know I had this problem and I think chiropractors are very heart oriented people. They want people to get better. They want, you know, they want to see people, other people love what they do as much as they do. And it was hard for me. Um, And I think that was such a great skill that you had at that point. And to, if you can develop that as a student or as a, as a young doc, or even in practice to say, okay, great. Like how did they receive that and not be, emotionally responsive and attached to how they respond because that it just clouds your ability to see what's happening and to change and improve. Yeah. And sometimes we forget with somebody, somebody like Larry Troxell, he's far enough down the road. He can give a patient three adjustments and not get in his own way. Right. But when you're just learning how to walk. You can't take three steps and not trip. So it's like, it, it, he, it's one of those things I've always said the truest sign of a, of a professional is the ability to take something incredibly complicated and make it look so easy that everyone thinks they can do it. And if you go by that definition, that's, what's going to happen. You make the, and we've all had that happen. You give the adjustment and then the patient comes out and goes, well, I asked my husband or my wife to do it. Cause you made it look so easy. <laughs> that's a compliment. I'm glad I made it look easy, but that's the sign of professionals being able to do that. Well, in our profession, we've got some guys who are really far down the road and they can do some really complex things and make them look really, really easy, but we still have to go back and take baby steps to get there. And so that's where, when you're just starting out one, a segment at a time, see what it does and take note of it is the, is the simple formula for getting better as quickly as possible. It does. It really, you know, the body will talk and it will give you the feedback that you need with all your analysis tools. And it, uh, Really is amazing. You see it even now. I mean, you know, time, it's kind of cliche as an older, older doctor to say it, but the time goes by and I've seen, you know, there even 10, so this is my 14th year in practice, even 10 years, there were times, plenty of times. And even now I'm like, man, I am just starting to figure some of this stuff out. It's amazing, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me today. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun. Um, I enjoyed talking about this and uh, best of, uh, luck and success on the book i hope it does really really well oh this is a blast i uh can't believe i was this slow to pick up on what you're doing i can't wait to catch up on all the episodes well you bet yeah thanks again yeah absolutely till next time i want to thank dr davis once again for joining me that was a great conversation and i'm really looking forward to his book speaking of which his book will be out in august but you can pre-order the book if you look him up on facebook he has a kickstarter program where you can place a pre-order Well, that's all for this week. 
So I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.